Hello, everyone, and welcome to Culturally Relevant, a podcast about film, television, art, and culture. I'm David Chen. That sound, otherwise known as the Tadam sound, is the sound that Netflix plays with its logo on the front of all Netflix original productions. It's also the namesake of a blog that Netflix began to promote its own shows and films. In February of 2022, Business Insider published an article summarizing the Tadum effort. Uh, here is a quote from the story, quote, with stories like the Tinder swindler might just scare you off dating apps and the ultimate Ozark travel guide, Tadum reads like many a digital lifestyle magazine with a breezy voice and easily digestible fare. But the site, launched in beta mode in December following a fan event of the same name in the fall, isn't an online news outlet. It's a Netflix marketing platform focused on the streaming service's own shows and movies that has hired a wide and sparkly array of former entertainment journalists, end quote. Of course, Netflix as a company has recently run into some financial issues. A couple weeks ago, they announced that they had lost 200,000 subscribers in the first quarter of 2022 and were planning to lose 2 million more in the second quarter. A week after that, Netflix laid off 25 people from its marketing department, including a dozen writers from Tadum. Here to speak with me today about those layoffs and what they might mean is Elaine Lowe. She is a senior entertainment business reporter at Business Insider, and she's been covering Tadum since its inception about five months ago. She's also written some of the best coverage about it over at Business Insider. Elaine, thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Let's talk a little bit about Tadum as a whole. I described it as kind of part of a blog, um, but it's really part of a whole set of strategies that Netflix is employing, editorial strategies that it's employing to promote its own materials. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I think of Tadam and Q, which is their awards magazine, an actual uh, print magazine. Actually, recently when I was in the lobby of Netflix, um, I could see it for the first time in the flesh, just sitting out in the lobby. Um, it's part of their editorial strategy to sort of have these, these in-house magazines and websites for as an accompaniment uh, companion piece to their shows and movies kind of like uh, i don't know i think of it sort of like as you know the in-flight magazine right where you can like sort of read about like what's going on but it's not it's 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 an independent editorial product to a degree right um and the the objective being to to basically promote netflix tv shows and films and and to kind of mimic what uh, a fan site, a lifestyle blog would write about some something like Netflix, right? Right. Yeah. Um, I am curious, before this layoff happened and before you wrote about, you covered it at Business Insider, like, had you read a to-dumb piece out in the wild on your own? Like, how did it land on your radar? Because I think a lot of the people have been saying uh, that they didn't even know that this existed when these layoffs hit. Right. I will say I hadn't actually encountered a Tadum story in the wild. The reason why it was on my radar is because as a reporter, as a journalist, you know, it's like we're on Twitter all the time. And, you know, I was seeing a lot of these announcements of you know some personal news. I'm going over to Netflix to work for Tadum, uh, you know, as a writer, as an editor. And, you know, we were seeing this flurry. Basically, Netflix started recruiting for this Tadum product last summer. And there were some very high profile names that went over, uh, most notably, uh, you know, a, a former Allure uh, editor-in-chief, Michelle Lee. Um, and then just, just this bevy of, of talented writers and editors who had traditionally come from, you know, traditional media like Entertainment Weekly or Vice or The Wrap. 
and you know we're essentially you know leaving journalism to uh, work on Tadum as as you know sort of it's it's basically marketing writing but the the segue from journalism to that is you know you're essentially going to be doing the same work you'll be writing these entertainment stories you'll write about Ozark the show you'll interview Jason Bateman you know you'll you'll talk to the stars of X Y and Z um, you know write about Bridgerton in the same way that you might have for an entertainment or lifestyle site before. Yeah, and uh, when I read your original piece about Tadum over at Business Insider, uh, I was kind of happy for these journalists. You know what I mean? There was some mm-hmm. quotes in the piece. Uh, here's a quote from the piece from one writer who said, quote, it boils down to money. Journalism is struggling and a lot of us are tired and they keep cutting staff jobs and budgets and we're doing more and more and more and being held to metrics that keep changing. And if Netflix says, we're going to pay you a more than livable wage and let you continue to write about the things that you write, honestly, why wouldn't you want to do that? End quote. And mm-hmm. uh I was really happy for these folks because uh, I have been in online publishing before and it is a brutal industry. It you know, is it a is... brutal industry. I mean, journalism in general, part of this conversation, right, when we're talking about Netflix and Tadum, a big part of this is a conversation about journalism and the state of modern journalism, which is it's fucking brutal. Sorry, am I allowed to say? Yes, that's, the, uh, that's completely internet? fine. It, 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 <laughs> it, it's brutal because it's hard to make money and the jobs are constantly vanishing and people need to keep kind of leaping from from job to job in order to survive. Um, I have a friend of mine who's in the publishing industry and um, whenever a publication closes down, sometimes uh, this person will send me a message and say, the ice flow just got a little bit smaller that uh, everyone is kind of balancing on for dear life. It's and true. so. Uh, to hear that Netflix is starting up its own publication, hiring a lot of uh, minorities, people of color mm-hmm. to staff it um, and paying them exceptionally well. Sounds like a lifeboat, right? Yeah, it sounds like a lifeboat, a, a lifeboat and uh, and one that, you know, after a, an industry that has ground a lot of these people down, it's like, hey, finally, something good is happening to a lot of these folks who have worked really hard in the midst of a great deal of instability. Mm-hmm. Um, good for them. And of course, Netflix has the money, right? Netflix yeah. is flush with uh, investment, and uh, they're gonna, they're go- going from strength to strength. Yeah, it's of a course, Hollywood company. It's flush with all the Silicon Valley money. Yes, I mean, it's Netflix, right? It's going <laughs> to last forever. It's going to last forever. And uh, so I, I was happy for these folks when I, when I read it. And you know, there's there's some pe- some journalists who like turn up their nose at this stuff, and they say, you know, that these. Uh, people are basically producing propaganda for Netflix, but you know, I believe you're quoting Graydon Carter there. Yeah, mm-hmm. Graydon Carter, <laughs> yeah, uh, creator of Vanity Fair. But yeah, um, it's uh, it's tough out there, uh, and so it's like I, I'm kind of very understanding of you know whoever's doing whatever they need to do to survive. Uh, so then Netflix hit one of the worst quarters, uh, the worst quarter it's ever had, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, Lost some several hundred thousand subscribers. Lost fifty billion dollars off of its market cap mm-hmm. within the course of a couple of days. The stock has not bounced back yet. It's not mm-hmm. like, you know, sometimes it'll be a, a bad earnings call and then you know a couple of days later it bounces back. It's if anything, I think it's lower now than it was the day after. Yeah, they um, lost thirty five percent the day after their previous. Uh, the day after their quarterly earnings. And that was on top of the previous quarter in which they had already, uh, you know, their stock got pummeled. So it's been a series of bad quarters for Netflix stock-wise, optics-wise. They're forecasted to lose 
another 2 million paying subscribers after already losing 200,000 in, in the previous quarter. So it's it's not looking good. Yeah. Now, we can't know for sure, unless you know for sure, Elaine, whether or not these layoffs at them were connected with that. But it does seem like it fits in the sense that um, Netflix is trying to uh, cut costs, extract more value from its existing subscriber base by doing things like cracking down on password sharing and things of that nature. And so um, it, it wouldn't surprise me if it was connected. Uh, but yeah, there were some layoffs this past week. And uh, obviously, there's no right way to do layoffs. There's only less bad ways. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about... Well, actually, you know, before we get to the layoffs, actually, can you talk a little bit about what you found in your reporting about what it was like to work at Tadum even before the layoffs happened? Sure. So the folks that I had spoken to who worked at Tadum, I mean, it's... Most of them went into this feeling pretty optimistic. I know at least one was a little wary of saying, well, you know, I'm leaving my my full-time job at the traditional media company to go join a tech company, um, you know, slightly outside of the comfort zone. But at the same time, the promise was, for the folks who I spoke to, who recalled when they were being interviewed, the promise was, you can come here and work on very similar coverage to what you were doing before. You can interview these celebrities, you can write about these shows, write some, you know, cultural, you know, do some do some in-depth cultural writing here. Um, and you know the, the the pay is great. I mean, they the folks that I spoke to said that they were getting paid sixty dollars to eighty five dollars an hour for, and they were all contracted writers. They weren't technically full time Netflix employees, but they were contracted for forty hour weeks. So sixty to eighty five bucks an hour for forty hour weeks. Those rates annualized to one hundred twenty four thousand eight hundred to one hundred seventy six thousand and eight hundred dollars a year, which is far more money than than most of us journalists will ever see in a year. Yeah. Yeah. But beyond the uh the payment though, like what was it like to actually work there because it seems like there was some disarray and lack of focus in terms of the strategy. Right. So initially, you know, folks were said it was you know it was fine. You know, we were we we're writing those the kinds of stories that we were writing before. Um but what became apparent a few months in um, from the the five staffers I spoke to, is that there really wasn't a clear strategic vision. Um, you know, no fault to the the talented editors and writers who are working there, but just sort of the directives they were getting from the corporate side, from Netflix executives there, didn't necessarily convey the clearest strategic vision. There were no clear metrics for what's considered a, a success. And and you know, if anybody who's worked as a reporter or a journalist for an online site, it's like, you know that your stories are always counted in page views, or if you work behind a paywall, it's counted in subscriptions. How many subscriptions are you bringing in? There's usually some kind of metric that's considered uh, the standard by which you're measuring yourself, the yardstick, right? Of like, oh, I need to they need this story to, to, to bring in at least 20,000 page views for it to be considered a success. Um, and I was told that there really wasn't any kind of metrics, which I mean, in an ideal scenario would be great. If you're if you're a journalist and somebody's telling you, you don't have to worry about SEO, right. you don't have to worry about page views or subscriptions, just write the best story that you can write and it will find an audience. Like that's the dream. Um, but the flip side of that is when you're not given a clear metric for that, then you don't really know if you're doing a good job, right? Um, and another part of that is they were initially promised a lot of editorial freedom, um, which I think was appealing to them when they joined because the idea of joining a, a corporate 
in-house publication, you know, the worry is that, oh, are they going to basically make me write, as Great and Cardin put it, propaganda. Um, but they were told, no, you have, you'll have editorial freedom um, to write things that are, you know, maybe even a little bit critical of some of the Netflix shows. Uh, and that quickly devolved into, as one person put it to me, quote, glorified content marketing. And, you know, they said, you know, we were sold this false fantasy. We got scammed. Like, this is not what we, this is not what we thought we were getting into. And, you know, to that, I'll say, it's like, you know, they understood that they were going to essentially write some, some version. They were working for a marketing department, right? But they were told that they would have this editorial freedom, which is sort of a nice balance of things. And 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 the person I spoke to who said this also had said, you know, it, it really wouldn't have mattered if they wanted content marketing, but to just be straight with us and say, mm-hmm. hey, we want you to generate marketing copy. If that's what they wanted for $85 an hour or $60 an hour, sure, yeah, we can do that, but just be honest. And they felt like that that was not made clear to them. Yeah, yeah. And the thing about metrics is interesting too, because it's not impossible uh, to to tie metrics of this kind into, I don't know, the vast technology platform that Netflix has. Like you could say, okay, um, were you able to drive viewership of your article for people who had watched X show, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and presumably they'd have that data because you have to go to netflix.com to read to dumb, right? Yeah, and um, you'd think that a place like Netflix would, <laughs> they're, they're data-driven, right? The algorithm is a big part of how they make content decisions. So one would have assumed Going in, I think it would have been a very safe assumption to make going in that, oh, they're probably tracking all of this in the same way that they track, you know, whatever they consider a successful show to be. Yeah. I think when I read this story, what strikes me is that it is sometimes hard to tell the difference between um, like corporate machinations and lack of alignment internally versus trying something uh, half-heartedly failing and then scaling it back. Let me mm-hmm. let me see if I can delineate those two. Right, like mm-hmm. uh, you ro- you wrote, and many people have pointed out that like uh, Bazoma St. John used to be head of marketing at Netflix. Right, um, she left the company after I think less than two years, but mm-hmm. it was under her that Tadum began, right, or the idea mm-hmm. of Tadum began. I think it was under her that Michelle Lee was hired, mm-hmm. and so she left. And then it's like maybe this was a project. Maybe Tadum was a project that had no champion. Mm-hmm. And it was just a drift. And then, you know, because there was no one backing it up, um, they're just like, hey, we got to cut wherever we can. And it ends up on the chopping, chopping block. That's one version of events. Another version is that uh, maybe they launched it and they're like, hey, this isn't quite doing what we wanted it to do. Or there's not that we have enough metrics to know that this is not going to go where we want it to go. So let's just let's just uh, cut our losses while we can. Mm-hmm. Um I, I mean, those both seem plausible to me. Like, do, do you feel like they're plausible? Do you have any sense of like which one of those is true? Is there another scenario I'm not considering? I'll be honest with you. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know, I know, you know, I, I, I don't want to be one of those pundits that sort of just like float something out there that like this could be it. I mean, those sound like both entirely plausible scenarios. I don't have that line of sight into their strategic thinking to be able to know. I don't think the Tadum writers and editors who got laid off know exactly why their team got laid off. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, those it, it's it's sort of part and parcel of, I think it's easy to think that, you know, when you have a large tech company who's trying things, who 
is trying to sort of figure out what makes things sticky, how to bring in new viewers that, yeah, there's this like essentially move fast and break things kind of philosophy, right? Um, which is not unusual for a tech company. Um, and so that's that's potentially how it is. And, and it's also it also would be completely plausible to see how if a department head has been replaced, um, that maybe the person who's you know now sitting in that position would want to go in a new direction. Um, I mean, you look at what's happening over at Warner Media with CNN Plus, this huge product, this huge streaming product that was launched and then very, very quickly shuttered. I mean, that's that's a huge reversal, too. Right. But that's that was the product of a merger between, you know, Warner Media and Discovery. Um, and and clearly somebody saying, hey, I actually don't think that was such a good idea. And now that we're merged and now that it's under, you know, a certain corporate control, like let's let's let's, you know, reverse course on this. Um, and with Netflix, obviously not not the case in terms of corporate leadership. But um, yeah, I, I think it's hard to say, but I think those are completely plausible. Yeah. I mean, it to, it to me sounds like a very similar thing that, that happened at CNN Plus, where in that case, it was uh, execs not aligned on what was going to happen, right? Like mm-hmm. execs at Discovery not aligned with execs at time, like Warner Media mm-hmm. about how things should happen. And then like, Unfortunately, it's the lower level staffers that get caught in the crossfire. Yeah, this uh, happens all the time in media. Yeah, exactly. So to, to me, that feels like the most plausible, but we should be clear, like we have no inside information. Yes, in, in I have case. no line of sight yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I, I if I were a better reporter, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> not not what I was implying at all, but yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it, it's it's very plausible that that's what happened here. And it's very unfortunate because it's like, yeah, the, you know, there's a lot of uh, collateral damage, unfortunately. Right. So as I was saying before, um, the layoffs happened and, you know, there's no good way for layoffs to happen. But it seemed like these were particularly brutal. Like, uh, what can you talk about in terms of how the layoffs went down in this case? So in terms of how these staffers learned about it, some of them, you know, logged on in the morning, went on Slack, would see that, oh, hey, somebody else's Slack account seems to have been deactivated. What's going on there? You know, somebody I talked to had gotten a missed call from corporate and then logged on to Slack, you know, everybody's talking about the layoffs, actually takes this call, gets laid off. And then 30 minutes later, Slack and email access get cut off. So everybody's Slack and email access got cut off about, you know, I'm told about 30 minutes after they learned the news. Um, some people were talking about it on Slack as, all, you know, the, the activations were happening. So, you know, it just seemed really disorganized to them and very abrupt. Um, and of course, when you know you have writers who are uh, you know frequently on Twitter, uh, that's you could sort of see it happening in real time because they were reacting to it as it was happening, and so you could see somebody say, "Hey, I just got laid off." Hey, is anybody hiring? Um, so it was it, it was really unfolding in real time. Yeah, and um, I, I think I read in your piece that uh, they were only given two weeks of of severance or something like that, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. And and I don't even know if severance is technically the the technical term for it since they weren't technically um, Netflix full-time employees. They were uh, contracted out by a separate agency. But the, yes, they were given two weeks worth of pay, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's not a lot to get by when you're trying to figure out what your next job is and you're hoping to turn things around quickly. And Especially of course, because, when you yeah. have Netflix, a giant company who you assume is flush with, uh, you know, money that they might be able to, to you know, give out a little bit more than two weeks worth of wages. Well, especially because in this case, many of these writers uh, left like arguably more stable jobs, union jobs mm-hmm. sometimes, yeah. uh, moved across the country to do this job. 
Uh, and then we're told five months later they're out. Uh, people have also pointed out that a lot of these writers are also minorities and people of color, which is what make this uh, what makes this layoff very unfortunate. To me, it feels like it's a situation where Netflix, which theoretically, you know, on social media espouses progressive ideals, mm-hmm. like those ideals colliding with the bottom line uh, and a misaligned corporate strategy. Do you have any thoughts on that particular uh, point of view? I think it's a real shame that you had all of these talented writers and editors. So many of them were women, people of color. Um, I don't know exactly how large Tadum's entire editorial staff was, but from what I have been told, it was largely, again, you know, people of color and women. And these are not voices that you, you know, necessarily hear on, in mainstream media. I mean, if you sort of look at the diversity makeup of any typical newsroom, um, you know, Tudum, if if from what I was hearing was right, was probably more diverse than a lot of general newsrooms are. Um, so it's just it's a real shame to see a diverse staff suddenly be let go to that degree. And like you were saying, a lot of folks had moved. I from what I understand, um, they had left full time media jobs, which are so hard to come by. It's like you know, if you're working as a journalist. You're holding on for dear life in a lot of instances. I mean, it's like I, I know as somebody who's been in this industry for, for over a decade and been in as a business journalist for almost a decade, it's like I've been through three newsrooms in the last few years and just I get survivor's guilt of like, hey, I'm still able to do this. I feel so lucky and so fortunate. And so the idea of just picking up and and willingly leaving a full-time job as a reporter to go over to this thing that seems so promising, like this oasis of I'm going to get paid, you know, well into the six figures. I'm going to be able to write what I'd like to write. Um, you know, I'm going to have editorial freedom is and and work with all of these other really talented women and people of color. It's uh, it's it's really kind of a, a devastating blow to yeah. suddenly have that the rug pulled out from under you four, four and a half months after the launch. Yeah, and I wanted to reflect a little bit about this uh, regarding my own life working in the online publishing industry. You know, I've been working uh, at least tangentially in the world of, uh, let's say, film and television media for the last decade or so. And Mm -hmm. uh, what I have seen is just a ton of consolidation, right? A ton of like uh, media companies buying up all these independent websites. You know, when I started, uh, like literally a guy with a blog and a dream could make an okay living just uh, <laughs> writing about movies and selling ads on his website. And you, you, that's literally, you know, there were dozens upon dozens of those, uh, so a handful of which are still around, right? Mm-hmm. Many of those sites were acquired. Uh, many of them uh, have been bought by like much larger entities. And there, there are very, very, very few successful um, entertainment websites these days. So when I saw that Netflix was launching to them, I was like, oh, well, um, m- maybe this is still a way to do it. I mean, obviously they can't cover it as brutally, honestly, as like an outside site would, but uh, at least they have lots of capital and can support something like this for a really long time. I could not have guessed that a really long time would only turn out to be five months. Mm. Um, and, you know, thinking back on it, it does feel pretty bleak. Um, just based on the fact that even they didn't want to keep their site open, <laughs> you know, they didn't even, you know, um, and although to be clear, Tadum is still there. Tadum hasn't right. shut down. It's, it's the true. entire culture, 
vertical, basically, which is a team of around, uh, I want to say, 11 or 12 staffers. That whole vertical got shut down. I don't know how many staffers are left, but that's not the majority of them. Sure. Uh, and it's a good call. And maybe this is just part of some reorganization. And, uh, you know, three years from now, Elaine, we're going to be talking again about how Tadum has, you know, grown to be, it just crossed its 200th employee. And now <laughs> it's, uh, you know, doing gangbusters in terms of numbers. But uh, seeing these layoffs and, and, you know, who knows what the future holds for it, but it does feel like it foretells a, a, a bleak future for uh, specifically entertainment media. I guess I'm curious, like, what is your, t- you, you said this is a story about the state of online journalism right now. Like, mm-hmm. what are some of your big takeaways from this? Oh, I mean, just for, for its reinforcement that it's brutal out there and that even for the folks who are leaving the traditional media environment and crossing over to, you know, a studio or a corporate environment or something else that's outside of tr- traditional media but is still sort of media adjacent, that there's really no safety net, Right. I mean, like, let's be very honest about what what the the career trajectory of journalism is right now. There comes a point, I think, in many a journalist's career where you are either offered a position in communications or PR or you are sort of, you know, maybe given a glimpse into an off ramp of like, here's what else you could be doing that would be a more stable job that would, you know, likely make more money to either work in communications or, you know, to work in PR or to work in, you know, somebody's, you know, communication strategy team, right? And you kind of look at that off-ramp and you say, maybe? <laughs> like, I mean, do do I know how many more years I have left as a reporter or an editor before some you know, in the case of many local newspapers before some giant private equity vulture comes and scoops up all of these local papers and, and, and you know, slashes budgets and slashes personnel, as we've seen, um, or, you know, before there's some, you know, billionaire or, you know, giant corporation that comes and consolidates, you know, the, the, the publication that you work for with a bunch of other sister publications. And then you're sort of bracing yourself for like whatever the quote unquote synergies, corporate synergies are going to be. So, I mean, I think as a, like, if you're a journalist, if you're a working journalist today, I think most of us have had that moment of introspection of just like, how much longer am I going to get to be here? Like, even if you want to hang on for dear life in this industry, it's not always going to be possible. And so I think to see this, to see these folks think that they were safely moving on to a different environment. And, you know, a lot of them, one of one person I had spoken to had been through several layoffs as a reporter. And to go through one layoff is tough. To go through several layoffs over the course of, you know, five, six, seven years is brutal. And to finally think that, like, hey, as this person put it, I was ready to rest. Like I was ready Mm -hmm. to take a corporate job and write some, you know, editorial copy and be okay with where I am. And to have to undergo another layoff is, you know, they were largely blindsided. I mean, like, and, 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 and honestly, one of the only other clues that any of them had is that technically this past week was scheduled as a quote unquote quiet week and all their meetings were taken off the calendar. And they were told that this was a time for them to focus on their work and to rest. And then for, again, the rug to be pulled out from under them um, with, uh, you know, mass layoffs is, 
I mean, gosh, I, I can't even, I, I'm trying to wrap my head around it, you know? Yeah, yeah. There are a lot of dystopian elements to a story like this. And the idea that I, I've really noted that when you said they, they got all their meetings taken off because it was a quiet week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's just the way, the way things are in, uh, in working life these days. But, you know, Elaine Lowe, I'm hoping that you will be sharing your stories and reporting with us for many, many years. Into oh, the fingers future. crossed. <laughs> um, I'm really grateful to you for joining me today to chat about this. Um, Elaine Lowe is a senior entertainment business reporter at Business Insider. Um, check out her stories about to dumb and the layoffs uh, and Netflix. I will be linking to them in the show notes. Elaine Lowe, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. And to everybody out there, please pay for journalism. Subscribe to your local newspaper. You know, subscribe to all of the news sites that you are passionate about reading because that is how working journalists get paid. Amen. All right, folks, that's going to do it for us today here on Culturally Relevant. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do write a review for us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. I would really appreciate it. Or share about the show on social media. Follow this podcast on Twitter at CREVSHOW, C-R-E-V-S-H-O-W. I mean, that really does help because people look at the CREV Show Twitter account and they're like, wow, some people listen to this. And that makes them more likely to join the show. So if you could give me a follow at CREV Show, I'd really appreciate it. This episode was edited and produced by me, David Chen, and it was powered by Simplecast. Check out simplecast.com for a great podcast management and analytics solution. I also want to give a big shout out to my patrons at patreon.com slash Dave Chen. Sign up there for exclusive bonus audio as well as access to my office hours. Thanks to all the folks at patreon.com slash Dave Chen for making this podcast possible. We'll see you next time on Culturally Relevant. <laughs>